0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, uh, Happy New Year. The 20s look great on you guys. You're living in the 20s, that's weird, huh? So let me begin here. I've taken just about every personality test uh, uh, imaginable. Spiritual gifts assessment, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, all of them. But every time they come back all over the place. Very inconclusive. In fact, I've taken each test multiple times, and each time Uh, these tests come back with differing, you know, different results. Now, I'd like to think that it's because I'm such a mysterious man, you know, too complex to be summed up in a number or an acronym or something like that, too, you know, spiritually gifted to be reduced down to a number of little strengths or that sort of thing. But the truth be told, these tests are wasted on me because of how I go about answering them. I find myself answering the questions how I think I'm supposed to be answering the questions. I find myself not projecting the real me. I, I find myself projecting sort of an ideal, ideal version of myself, the, the me that I think I'm supposed to be, the me that I think would score highly on this test. If we were to be honest, this is often how many of us are operating and moving through life. We are projecting a version of ourselves that we feel fits the occasion, but it isn't necessarily the truest version of ourselves. In the social sciences, uh, the term for this is impression management. And it means just that that we are trying to manage our, the way that we impress other people, the way that we are being observed by, uh, by others. And the idea is that. We are actors on this whole stage of life, and there's a front stage and there's a backstage. The front stage is the life that we live before people in the public square, in work, uh, or in in just wherever, in school, or those sort of public spheres. And then the backstage is the us, the more relaxed version of ourselves when we tuck away into our sort of quiet corner of our lives. And in the constant back and forth, between home and work or home and church or you know the tight-knit family unit and the broader friendship circles in that back and forth what ends up happening is the lines begin to blur the front stage us the backstage us it all starts to get sort of jumbled and we begin to believe things about ourselves that aren't necessarily true And we also begin to neglect the things about ourselves that are true. And what ends up happening is our identity, who we really truly are, gets confused. We find ourselves where a lot of people find themselves, in identity crisis. And when our identity is confused, we make ourselves extremely vulnerable in life. It's probably one of the most vulnerable places that we can be when we do not know who we are. And one of the things that it makes us particularly vulnerable to is false identities. See, a false identity is whenever we attach our worth and our meaning, who we are, either to what we do well or what pleases others or what seems to get attention from other people, or maybe the more dark side of the false identity, it's when we allow ourselves to be defined by our hurt or our struggle, or our weakness, our failure, and ultimately our sins. To sum it up, false identity is whether or not we believe that we are the sum total of the best or the worst of our experience. And I venture to say that many people are living, many of us are living in that place. We are either defining ourselves by our best, or we are defining ourselves by our worst experience, but by the, at the end of the day, these are both false identities. Never has, it been, never has there been a greater emphasis on self-discovery in, in Western culture, and yet never have we been less certain about who we really are. I mean, you just hear it everywhere. Be true to yourself, be true to yourself, be true to yourself. But if, if we're to be honest, for many of us, we don't even know who that is. How am I supposed to be true to myself when I'm not even sure who I am, what I'm supposed to be? what this whole life, whole identity, identity thing looks like. So identity is wildly important in our lives. And, and what I want to mention this morning is that it's also wildly important in our spiritual lives. Listen to the words of John Calvin. He said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, You want to be wise? you got to nail these two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. In other words, they are so inextricably connected that it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Last year, we walked through the book of the Gospel of Mark. And really, the question that Mark is getting to, the question that we sought to answer together was, who is Jesus? It's a simple question with huge implications, obviously. And so that's a question that continues to be repeated throughout the Gospel of Mark. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? It comes to a climax in Mark Mark chapter 8, where Jesus sits his disciples down, and he says, all right, all right, all right. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? This year... What we're going to be doing is we're going to be turning to the scriptures to answer another very, very important question. And the question is, who are we? 2019, we really focused on the question, who is Jesus? This year, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this very simple yet profound question. Who are we? Now, there are a lot of questions that are going to go unanswered. A lot of your questions are going to go unanswered. And there's a lot of uncertainty in life, even in the Christian life, but I believe that there's something that God desires for each and every one of us, and it's something that we would be confident and sure of no matter who we are or where we are, and this is it, that we would know for certain who we are, and that we would know for certain more specifically who we are because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, here is the gift of growing in an understanding of our identity, and it's that we simultaneously grow in our understanding of who God is. Listen to these famous words from St. Augustine. He said and asked, how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. How am I supposed to know God if I don't even know myself? I think some of us are unable or finding it very difficult to draw near to God. Perhaps it's because we are far from ourselves. That the biggest hindrance that we have in our coming to God and drawing near to God and to feeling his presence and encountering him on a daily basis is a lack of self-awareness. A lack of knowledge of who we are. And so my specific prayer for us as a church this year is that we would come to a life-transforming knowledge of both God and ourselves. And that the more that we experience who God is for who he really is, the more that we would then know and become who we really are. And the more that we become our real self, the more we would experience God. And it would begin to be this thing that just grows in our life and grows in our church. Now what we're going to do is we're going to begin this journey uh, by walking through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, if you knew if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you got a little bit nervous when we talked about starting a new series in the book of Revelation this year. So what we're going to do is we're only going to walk through the first three chapters. That doesn't mean the rest of the book is not important, but because we're looking at this this theme of identity, we're just going to walk through this first uh, the beginning of Revelation, and I've titled this series, Dear Church, Seven Letters to the Church. Now, it's a play on words because it's based on the letters to the church, but ultimately because we, God's people, are very near and dear to God. Now, just a little bit of context and history before we get into it. Revelation was a letter written to a number of churches in the first century, specifically seven churches that were really themselves struggling through the question of their identity and really struggling to live into what was true about them in a world that didn't make very easy for them. Uh, Whether it were the more suffering churches, like we're gonna read about in the weeks to come, that were gonna be tempted to believe that they were an abandoned people, that they were the sum total of failure and hurt and loss, or, as later we'll see in the letters, maybe more like the affluent churches like Laodicea that were tempted to think that they were the sum total of their successes, that their identity was rooted in what they had accomplished and all the good that they had done. So additionally, we are entering into the epiphany season. Uh, Epiphany is the period of time between now or technically tomorrow and Lent that really historically highlights the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Really the theme of this season is the unveiling of Jesus. And this is really how the letter begins here in the book of Revelation, with an unveiling. Look with me in verses 1 through 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Right out of the gate, we see an unveiling. This word revelation in the original language is apocalypses, which is where we get the word apocalypse, which is probably conjuring up a bunch of ideas and a lot of fears about the book of Revelation. No matter what kind of ideas or definitions we've assigned to this word apocalypse, what the definition of this word is, is it means the uncovering of something hidden. That's simply what it means. The uncovering of something hidden, the making known of that which we couldn't just discover on our own. And I believe this is a really important way to begin our series because it reminds us that who Jesus is and who we are is more uncovered than it is discovered. I think a lot of us are probably beginning this this year on a journey of self-discovery, but Revelation reminds us that really understanding who God is and who we are is not a matter of us discovering. It's a matter of graciously this, these themes being uncovered for us. In fact, John says the revelation which God gave. This is at the end of the day, vision and revelation is grace. It is God-given, which means we need God to show us God. And we need God to show us ourselves. In short, we need God to give us vision. And so, here briefly at the uh, beginning of this series, we're looking at chapter one. And as we look at chapter one, we're going to look at this chapter under three headings a vision of Jesus, a vision of us, and then third, a vision of Jesus with us. You still with me this morning? Okay. First, a vision of Jesus. Now, John tells us that he has been exiled to an island called Patmos on account of his testimony and witness of the gospel. Now, exile to Roman outposts like Patmos, similar to islands like this. I believe that island is actually the island from Star Wars. I wasn't supposed to say that, but that's the island from Star Wars. But it reminds me of Patmos. Uh, was typically reserved for political enemies. This was not a place for... Your typical criminals or people in prison for petty theft or murder or anything like this. It had a very, uh, historically, it was for people like political enemies. Think about Napoleon and those sort of things. And so what this highlights is that Rome saw Christianity not just as some annoyance or just some new religious fanatic group or cult that was coming about in the first century. What it highlights is that they saw Christianity as a political threat. The fact that John is on Patmos means that they saw a potential in Christianity that there, it was potentially powerful enough to undermine the Roman Empire as we knew it, which history tells us ended up happening. Listen to how one angry mob describes uh, the apostles and the disciples that visited, visited a, another Roman outpost, another Roman city in, in the book of Acts. Now, remember, this is the mob speaking about the disciples. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down, God, I wish that would be said about us, have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. This is what Rome had against Christianity, that they were turning the world upside down with the message of Jesus Christ and the proclamation that there's a new king in town and his name is Jesus. And it sent shivers down the spine of the empire. The message that John was testifying to, the message of the gospel that we have today was, and I really truly believe is today, powerful enough to turn the world upside down. Can I get an amen? Amen. To turn the world upside down. And so here in John, uh, here is John rather, on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is Sunday. I love this. John is going to gather with the church, even if there's no church to gather with, because he believes that Jesus is going to show up. And he's gathered on Sunday. He's in the Spirit. He's got this profound experience of connection with God through the person of Jesus by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he receives a vision of the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a throwback to the prophecy of Daniel, referring to none other than Jesus Christ. And the voice of the Son of Man, the voice of Jesus says, write down all that you see and hear. I want you to write this down. Now, it's worth noting that we are told, uh, what we're told really about this vision of Jesus Christ. And and the point is not to explain to us what Jesus physically looks like. I don't think that this is the ultimate point of Revelation 1 so that that we know exactly what Jesus looked like. In fact, um, there's something that John's saying something here in verse 12. He said, I turned to see the what? The voice that was speaking to me. I think there's something here. John doesn't say, I turned to see the figure. I turned to see the vision. I turned to see the person. He says, I turned to see the voice. Faith does not come by seeing. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In fact, there's a distinct blessing for the one that reads this prophecy. Amanda gets a distinct blessing today as the reader, especially for the length of this passage. And we get a distinct blessing in what? Hearing it. Faith comes not by seeing, but by hearing. Now remember, the book is not just a strange uh, piece of abstract end times literature that no one really knows what to do with. At the end of the day, the book of Revelation is a vision of God and his people. If anyone ever now comes to you and says, "Wow, what's what's this book of Revelation all about? You may not have a full and complete answer, but what you can say is this. It's a vision of God and his people, and God with his people. This is not a letter that's simply uh, intended to offer us information, I think a lot of people in the past have taken the details of Revelation and they begin to sort of compare it with global news and what's happening and this means this and this means this and we we begin to study it as a science or we begin to study it as some sort of historic thing unfolding and we really miss the picture here. Revelation is not ultimately intended to give you information. Revelation is intended to capture your imagination. Our imaginations need to be captured and stirred. John, the author of Revelation, his job is to write down what he saw. Our job today in the 21st century, the church's job, is to now envision what we hear, to imagine it and now take it to heart. And so what do we hear about Jesus? One of the descriptions is that he's clothed in these long white robes. He's got this golden sash. What this is, is a picture of Jesus in his priestly role, Jesus is our forever and great high priest. There is no go-between between between us and God. We don't need a person or sacrifices or rituals to get to God. We go to God through Jesus Christ. He's our forever priest. We get another picture of Jesus. He's got white hair. What does white hair represent? It represents wisdom. Jesus is wise. Now, there's something in this text here that's debated by commentators, uh, so I don't know exactly what's being said here, but I think it's worth noting that the hair that John sees on the head of Jesus is like wool. So the, the, the blonde-haired, Fabio-like Jesus that you envision when you think of Jesus, put that away. This is a Jesus, Jesus with a fro. So think less Fabio and more Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I'm for that. Uh, the point is this. The point is this. This is not the white man's Jesus. This is the global Jesus. The Jesus that arose out of the Middle East. The Jesus is that, that's on the move in, in Africa and in Asia and places all over the world. Amen? Amen? His eyes are like flames. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of uh, the holiness of Jesus. We hear the sounds of the trumpet. The, the trumpets just don't sound any old time. When the trumpets sound, it means there's a pronouncement of royal importance We hear the sound of roaring waters. Imagine being by Niagara Falls or a very powerful waterfall standing there in the presence of this waterfall in a way where the sound of the waterfall cancels out and drowns out all the other noises. When God speaks, when Jesus speaks, his voice drowns out all the other noises of the world. Each image is giving us a different facet of Jesus' character helping us to to know who Jesus is. This is the point of the vision, to help us to grasp that who Jesus is, his identity, his attributes, his character, is found by listening to what Jesus says. Jesus, I want to see you. I want to experience you in my life. I want to see you in this world. I want to see you around me. Then learn to listen to his voice. It's also helping us to grasp that finding out who we are is also found by listening to what he says about us who you are is ultimately defined by the gracious voice of jesus which leads us to our second point a vision of us a vision of us now there's a painting in the met in new york It's titled, The Vision of St. John. It was painted in 1614 by El Greco. I believe that we have a picture of it. And it's a picture of the martyrs and our author, John, reaching upwards. They're reaching up, but the question is, what are they reaching to? And the interesting thing about this painting that you probably wouldn't guess, well, there's two interesting things about this painting. The first is that there's an entire portion of the painting missing up here. There's also another portion missing down here, but we made that edit today because of some private parts down there. Um, But there's an entire portion at the Met uh, missing on the above portion. And this painting is actually just a fragment of a larger uh, altarpiece that was commissioned by the church in the 17th century. And it depicts a passage that that we would, if we read on in Revelation, see later on in Revelation describing the fifth seal being broken and God distributing these white robes to the martyrs, those who died for their witness uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so the missing part above is believed to show Jesus Christ. A picture of the sacrificial lamb opening up the fifth seal and now distributing these white robes of righteousness and identity to, to the church, to the martyrs. And the interesting thing, according to history is that there was almost five feet, envision five feet of this painting removed. And it was removed during the Enlightenment period. And the Enlightenment period was a time where society was attempting to remove God from culture uh, and from the arts. And so essentially, a person or a group of people got together and removed the upper portion because they believed the person, Jesus, that was in the upper portion was was no longer relevant to the story. So picture this. They're reaching up, but to what? For who? And what this illustrates for us is where humanity finds themselves today as a whole. That we are there frantically searching to discover life. We're there frantically searching to discover meaning. We're there frantically searching to discover identity. We're naked. We are vulnerable. We are searching We are looking to be clothed, we are looking to be defined, we are looking to be identified, but we've cut ourselves off from the true source. And so we are all the more frantic, and all the more in the dark. What this painting depicts, and more importantly what the scriptures tell us, is that what you are looking for is received, not achieved. They're there posturing themselves to receive, not to achieve. Becoming who you were always intended to be, to, to become the you that you are searching for in your life does not come as you look within your own heart. It does not come as you look to the accomplishments of your own hands. It doesn't look as you come as you look to the people around you to define you. It comes by looking up to Jesus Christ in faith. You find you when you look to Christ. Verse 5, to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings in the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him who loves us, <clears throat> who's freed us and made us a royal priesthood. See, this is not just telling us about who Jesus is. This vision is telling us who we are. And the first thing that we're told, and take this down, is that we are loved. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are loved. I want you to listen to me, regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've accomplished, how much you make, what you've done, what you haven't done, how much you succeeded, how much you failed, where you are in life, this is who you are. You are loved. We need to to take a moment to allow that to sink in. You are loved, period. Not an ideal version of yourself, not the you that you think you're supposed to be, not some sort of future version of you when you arrive or you make it right now. But right now, you, in all of your mess and all of your complexity and all of your confusion, perfectly loved. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says you are loved. That's who He is. That's who you are. Listen to the words of Brendan Manning. He said, Define yourself radically as beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. I don't care who you think you are or what you've accomplished, any and every identity that falls short of being the beloved of God is falling short. You are loved. We are loved. The second thing we're told is that we are freed. We are freed. What does that mean? Well, the Bible describes we are freed from our sins by his blood. Now, sin, that's a difficult word to work through. Not because it's not culturally appropriate whatever, but because we have a lot of ideas of what sin is. Now, sin is more than just bad things that you do. Sin, as the Bible describes, it's not less, but it's more than the naughty things that you do or shouldn't do. Sin, as the Bible describes it, is a dominating force that seeks to enslave you. A dark, evil force that would love to have you and hold you in bondage. But through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Bible tells us, the power of sin, that enslaving, dominating force has been broken. Don't get me wrong, sin is powerful. You ever had an addiction? Then you know what I'm talking about. But the blood of Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus died. But he rose, and he lives forevermore. And when he rose, I love this image, he rose with the keys of death and Hades. He rose with the keys of death and hell. We were bound up, but Jesus got the keys. We were enslaved, but Jesus holds the keys. We were addicted, but Jesus holds the keys. We feel like we're in chains, but Jesus holds the keys. Now, while we do remain sinful, this is the complex part here. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence, at least at this point in our lives, the presence of sin still remains. However, the truest thing about us is not that we are sinful. The truest thing about us is that we are freed. You're not defined by your sin. You, if you are a child of God through faith, are defined by your freedom not by your brokenness, but by the forgiveness that's been extended to you as a gift of grace. You have been washed in Jesus' blood. You've been clothed in the pure garments of his righteousness. You stand in his track record, not yours. You are a freed man. You are a freed woman. That is who you are. No matter how great, the addictive powers, no matter how much sin is knocking at your door. When we wake up, he rose with the keys. (laughs) He holds the keys. The third thing we're told is that we are remade. That we are remade. That is who you are. You are remade. If you're a believer, you are not the self-made man. If you're a believer, you are not the self-made woman. We are those who are remade. We are those who are recreated in Jesus Christ. And what we are made into isn't just a new version of ourselves. It's not the 2.0 version of yourself. And it's not ultimately a brand new version of yourself. The Bible describes that we are, when we are remade through Jesus Christ, we are made a people. In sin, we were lonely, we were separated, as the Bible describes, we were aliens from the promises and the covenant of God, but when we are remade in Jesus Christ, we were once not a people, now we are a people. We are defined by this motley crew of people, his people though. And now, as the Bible describes, we are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood kingdom priests, which means that we are now a part of something bigger than ourselves. I've never met a single person that didn't want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. We are now a part of something bigger than us with an important part in the advancement of the kingdom of God. No big deal, right? I love this story. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy visited NASA Space Center desiring to be the people's president, he was mingling with some of the people that were working there. And he went and saw a man with a broom in his hand and he came to him and he said, hey, I'm Jack, nice to meet you, what are you doing? And the man says, um, just trying to earn a living here. Went on, saw another man pushing a broom and he came up to that man and he said, hey, I'm Jack, nice to meet you, uh, what, what are you doing? And he said, I, I'm just cleaning up trash. Went to a third man pushing a broom And he comes up, and he says the same greeting. He says, hi, I'm Jack. Nice to meet you. What are you doing? And the man looked at him in the eyes, and with a huge grin and joy on his face, he says, I'm helping put a man on the moon. I'm putting a man on the moon here. There's living, and I think you know the difference between the two. There's living, and then there's living. There's living in a way where we're just floating through life and then there's a way to live in such a way where we feel connected to that deep sense of profound purpose. My life matters. This is what Jesus is offering us. That no matter where we find ourselves, pushing a broom or loaded to a rocket going to the moon, we're putting a man on the moon. The beautiful thing that this story illustrates is that our purpose is not based on our particular task that's in front of us. I think that this is where we get blinded and discouraged. Our purpose is linked and connected to to the bigger picture of what God is accomplishing in this world through his church. I'm not defined. You are not defined by your task. I'm defined by God's global mission of renewal. I'm putting a man on the moon, and I'm seeking the renewal of this broken world. And God is doing this through me. God is doing this through us. Philosopher once put it this way. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? If you are beginning, and I have to imagine that you are probably like the majority of people, beginning this year feeling very aimless, And feeling very uncertain about where you are in life and what you're supposed to be doing. Then you, like me, we need to return back to the very basics that we see here. I am loved. I am freed. And I am being remade as a part of God's plan to renew this broken world. And the rest is just details, man. The rest is just details. Let's turn finally and briefly to our third point, a vision of Jesus with us. Now, this is important because without this truth, everything I've just mentioned is abstract. Who Jesus is, who we are. but We get a vision of who Jesus is with us. This is the picture that I want to leave you with this morning and, uh, and really pray that God really stirs in our hearts this week. Something to capture your imagination, something to capture your heart as you uh, leave this place today. And it's not just a vision of Jesus, it's not just a vision of us, but it's the reality that Jesus is with us, the promise that Jesus is with us. And I believe that this had to be a very, very important uh, truth for John, sitting on that island of Patmos by himself, feeling abandoned by just about everyone. And I have to imagine that this is an important truth for us today, the church as well. Look at me, verses 12 through 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, which later we're told represents the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the seven, I'm sorry, one like the Son of Man. So here, here's the picture that we're giving here, given here. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of them. He is With his church, Jesus walks with his church. Where is God in this world? Well, we know from the Bible that he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. But there's something specific here. There's something particular here. Where is God in the world? Where is Jesus in the world? He is with his church. And that's where you're going to find him. That's where you're going to discover him. The one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Trends and stats continue to indicate that people are giving up on the church. That's kind of the story of the 21st century for the church. But the fate of the church, and this is the good news that I'm staking everything on, the fate of the church is based on this one truth and this one reality, and it's that Jesus is never going to give up on her. You may give up on her. I hope you do not, but you may. You may. But I know for certain Jesus won't. Jesus promised He won't. He promised His disciples in Matthew chapter 8, 28 when He commissioned them to go into the world, He says, Behold, I'm with you always to the bitter end. And this is a promise that's true for us today. There's no way to know what uh, this year's gonna bring for your life, there's no way to know what this year's gonna bring for the life of our church. If, if, if the last 10 years have taught me anything, it's just to expect the unexpected. There's no way to know for certain what this decade going to bring. Uh, there's a very real possibility that at the end of this decade, at the end of the 20s, much will have changed. Our relationships, our finances, our jobs, our friendships. The sad truth is even some of us won't even be alive at that point. Our church is going to look dramatically different. Life will be different as we know it. Everything in your life is is gonna change in some way or another. But there's one constant that I, and I hope you as well, will stake everything on. And it's that Jesus will stand with us. Jesus is gonna stand with us. And like the seven stars that he holds in his hands, he's gonna hold his people in those nail-scarred palms. He's with us, he holds us. And now because of who he is, Our future is bright. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...